How do you convince someone that he or she needs something? The answer to that question largely depends on what we define as need. Sometimes needs can be pretty complicated, but other times that they, they are clear. If you're walking through the desert, it's pretty easy to convince someone that they need to drink water. In fact, you probably wouldn't have to convince them. If someone's hungry, it doesn't take much convincing that they need to eat food. However, needs have extended far beyond what we have to have in order to survive. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Ed Welch shows how our felt needs drive so many of our relationships and actions. He shows that the popular view of people is sort of a receptacle, a receptacle that's supposed to be filled up by psychological needs. And these needs revolve around love and significance. I need to feel loved and I need to feel significant. If those needs aren't met, we feel empty. While, yes, needs are complicated, we may often feel empty because our culture and our hearts have become especially crafty in convincing us of needs that aren't really there. Welsh gives the example of, of something like sex. How often have you hear, I just need sex? That's what our culture says. It's regarded as a biological need necessary to survive, like water or food. It's just simply not true. Needs that aren't really there. We can even get less serious and talk about material things. Any advertisement you have ever seen is trying to convince you that you need something. Take any product, for example, um, hair club for men, okay? Hair club for men is saying that without our product, you will remain balding, and therefore, if you remain balding, people will no longer accept you, and if people don't accept you, you will not feel good about yourself. So buy hair club for men. Salesmen know what convincing people that they need something is all about. Admittedly, I think of the two guys who went on the road throughout the Midwest trying to save their car parts company by selling brake pads from their new brake pad division. Pitching their, uh, to one of their potential clients that he needed to buy their brake pads, the goofy one of the bunch displayed through a puppet show that he needed to buy his, their brake pads because if they stuck with the other guy's brake pads, a family would end up crashing and burning. This is the movie Tommy Boy, by the way. <laughs> the point is, we see these needs that are not really there, and we have a suspect gauge, a barometer, of what our needs actually are. What we regard as needs are often just desires. And additionally, our desires are often selfishly motivated. They are about how we feel, rather than our desires being God-centered. So those who are Christians, those who walk and follow Christ, 
realize that it is Christ who redefines what our needs are and shapes what our desires should be. Now we're going to see this morning God's great plan to show us that our primary problem, our primary need is sin, is salvation from sin. It's not to feel better about ourselves, but to deal with our sin. What is this plan to show us this need? Well, that's where Galatians 3 comes in. So you'll find it in your insert or in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. The word of the Lord reads, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Would you pray with me as we begin our time? Oh Lord, may what is said this morning be faithful to your word. Glorify yourself through your preaching. Mold us and speak to us, God, through the word that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point of this passage is that God's promise in Christ grows sweeter and sweeter the more we, desperate, the more we realize how desperately we need it. God's promise in Christ grows sweeter when we realize how much desperately we need it. We're going to see this unfolded in two points. The first, Paul's going to establish that the promise is permanent. The promise to Abraham is permanent. But then he's going to say, well, the law still has a purpose. This comes in verses 19 and 25. So point one, a promise is a promise. Now the crucial issue of the entire book of Galatians is justification by faith. Now, justification, we said, means a le- it's a legal term. It's a legal declaration, not of guilty, but of righteous. So this crucial issue becomes especially clear 
at the end of chapter 2, when Paul lays out the gospel he's preaching. Now, last week, we observed how Paul set up an antithesis in chapter 2, verse 16, and he carried it along in chapter 3, verse 2, and he kept it going through chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. What is this antithesis? Well, we said it's between two different hows or two different paths. We're trying to get to the destination of blessing. Blessing being justification, being made right with God. So the two different paths are the path of faith and the path of relying on the works of the law, relying on our obedience to everything that God requires. So Paul shows that the path of faith leads to the destination of blessing, justification. But on the flip side, the path of relying on the works of the law leads to the path of the curse. Because the law, he says, requires complete obedience. And no one can completely obey. And therefore, all it can do is curse. So how do we know that faith is the road to justification? Paul gives argument after argument after argument. First in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, he tells the Galatians, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the sign of the people of God, and the people of God are those who have the blessing of God, who are justified. Secondly, in chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, Paul shows that God has always operated this way that it's always been by grace through faith. He appeals to Abraham and to Abraham's faith. He said, Abraham believed, and then what happened? It was counted to him as righteousness. Third, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, Paul shows the futility of going the other path. Following the path of the works of the law is, won't get us any, it'll get us to the destination of a curse because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So finally, in chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, Paul shows how this all comes together. If faith is the road to blessing, then how does does that work? It works because of Christ, our substitute. Christ is God's ultimate provision who took the curse of sin that we earned. And we take Christ's obedience, Christ's perfect righteousness. It's that sweet exchange. So now Paul uses a slightly different tactic to defend that we are justified by faith. Paul's going to show God's plan of salvation. So he'll begin by saying how God's promise takes precedence over God's law but conclude by explaining how God's promise and law have different functions and they work towards the same end. So Paul opens this section with a comparison that contributes to a lesser to greater argument. He establishes uh, a regular everyday principle and uses that to make a bigger argument. So what's this everyday principle? You look at verse 15. The example he uses refers to the permanence of a promise. So in verse 15, he describes the inalterability of a man-made covenant. Now, what is a man-made covenant? What does he have in mind here? 
He has in mind of what we would know as a last will and testament. So the definition for this word is a declaration of one person's initiative, not the result of an agreement between two parties. So we know this from our own experience. One person writes a will. Ultimately, it's their decision what to put in it. And at some point, you can't change what the will says. It's usually at the person's death. So perhaps you've dealt with the permanence of a will. Sometimes it's a frustrating thing, and other times it's maybe a good thing. So this is the most important part of the argument Paul's making about promise. The promise is permanent. But he fills out the picture a little bit more. And he sees the parties of the promise. So who's the one who made the promise? It says promises were made. This is the passive voice. But it's what we refer to as the divine passive. Who made the promises to Abraham? When you look at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, it's obvious. God made the promises to Abraham. But it's not just Abraham. God made the promise, verse 16, to Abraham and his offspring. To Abraham and his offspring. And Paul's adamant here. It seems sort of strange. He says, offspring, not offsprings. What's with this singular plural debate? Doesn't Paul know that offspring can refer to many people? Like the word family? You say family, you assume that it's a group of people? Is Paul bad at grammar? Of course, Paul knows that offspring can refer to many. If you look at chapter 3, verse 29, where he says, you are the offspring of Abraham. That you is plural. And in the north, we don't use a plural second person. We don't use a plural you. So if he's saying, y'all are the offspring of Abraham... So why is he so adamant about it being singular, one offspring? It's because the one to whom blessing is promised, he says, it's Christ. And we get Christ's blessing because we are united to him. He is our collective representative. So then offspring is kind of the perfect word to use here because it refers to one, and by referring to one, you refer to those who are connected to him. So God made the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, and it says promises. And what were these promises? Paul kind of sums up everything by calling it an inheritance in verse 18. And we see the promises are physical blessings. He promises seed and land. But the promises we see earlier in chapter 3, God meant to extend to all nations. So all the nations aren't going to inherit the land of Israel, but all nations will inherit the blessing of Abraham. Salvation, justification, being right with God. So the promised inheritance of salvation to Abraham and his offspring, Christ and those connected to him, is permanent and unalterable. That's what Paul is trying to say. So then how does the law affect it? How does God giving the law 430 years later affect this promise? This is what Paul is trying to answer in verse 17. 
it doesn't affect it. By the time the law came, it was well after God had already made his promise. And God didn't make his promise void. He didn't add the Mosaic law as fine print to what he promised to Abraham. No, a a promise is a promise. It was permanent. God would do it. We saw last week God's promise that he and his commitment that he would do it in Genesis 15, when God tells Abraham, take some animals and cut them in half and lie them across from one another. And this, we said, was sort of a, a cross my heart and hope to die on steroids. And so what would happen is a person would make an oath promising that if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, let me become like these animals here. So it's not Abraham who walked through. It's God himself who walks through. God is going to be the one who provides. God's going to be the one who does it. So if God adds the law as this fine print, then not only does he change his mind, but he breaks his promise. Because if it's, if it's now dependent on us, God's no longer going to be the one who provides. And God's not in the business of breaking promises. So, this sort of seems, though, like the logical flow of things. The law came after the promise. So now doesn't God just want us to add our works to the promise? This is what the Judaizers were saying. The Judaizers were saying. The Judaizers were uh, Paul's opponents in the churches of Galatia. They were saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We believe in that promise. But just like Moses was added to Abraham, now we have to add Moses to Jesus. So we believe in Jesus, but we're going to add our works of Moses, like circumcision and like dietary restrictions. However, this is bad hermeneutics. This is bad interpretation of the Bible. And that creates bad theology. And that affects how we live. Paul shows in verse 18 that promise and law, promise and law are mutually exclusive concepts. One commentator points out that you can see this and even in how they, God gave each of them. How did God give the promise? We said in Genesis 15. God gave the promise by saying, I will. How did God give the law? Look at the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. God gave the law by saying, thou shalt, you will. You see the difference here? Adding the law would have meant that the inheritance would no longer be received, but earned. You can't earn a promise. Thus, if God adds the law as a requirement, not only does he change his mind, but he would have broken his promise. So the Judaizers failed to see that the promise to Abraham coming before the giving of the law showed that the promise took precedence and that the law was subordinate to the promise. So if they had grasped that Christ was the fulfillment of the promise, 
then they would have had an easier time seeing that God operates on grace, not on our performance. So rightly understanding a story means seeing how all the parts work together. We know this, uh, it's often the case that knowing the ending of something makes sense of all the details that came before it. That's why we hate spoiler alerts, right? Movies like The Sixth Sense, uh, A Beautiful Mind, uh, The Sting, make a lot more sense as a whole once you know the ending. Other times there are stories that you can go back to time and again to try to figure out how all the parts work together. I think of Christopher Nolan movies like Inception and Interstellar and The Prestige. They just stump me every time. I think of English literature books that I had to read in high school that I just didn't get how it fit together. So I had to keep on rereading them. But our favorite stories are those that we know how it all works together and yet we still enjoy the big picture. This is why people have loved Star Wars for 30 years. And this is why we refer to some novels as classics. We see how it works, and we still love it. So the Judaizers were like those who watched 15 minutes of a movie and claimed to know what it was all about. Their mistake shows us how important it is to strive toward good hermeneutics. That means striving towards a good interpretation of the Bible. So when looking at any portion of Scripture, it's important to see where it fits in the whole. It's like the three most important things in real estate. Location, location, location. When interpreting Scripture, context, context, context. God revealed himself and his plan over time. He did it progressively. This whole thing didn't come down just at once. Everything we see when we see the whole leads to and prepares for Christ. Jesus himself recognized this. After his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. And it says that he explained to them all the things in the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, concerning himself, that everything leads to him. So that means rightly interpreting scripture begins with seeing how every part fits within God's plan and points to or prepares for Christ. What we know about Jesus' fulfillment also affects how we see what came before it. It doesn't mean that what came before it is purposeless, as Paul's going to point out in the next section. But it does mean it takes on a clearer significance. That's why when I preach, I stress the context of the passage. The immediate context is important, how the certain portion of the book fits in with the larger argument of the book, and how that book as a whole fits within Scripture. So Galatians, the book of Galatians comes in the age of fulfillment. We've been waiting for and for Christ to come. Christ has come, and now we live in the age of fulfillment, the age of the church. 
This is where Galatians comes in. This is how it fits in the whole big picture. So we strive towards good hermeneutics, good interpretation, not just for its own sake so we can be brainiacs, but because it affects how we live. You see, if we don't get the big picture, then we're not, we're not going to see how Jesus fulfills God's promises. And then we'll end up living like Judaizers. And it's easy to forget this. Because so much of our world is performance-based. You think of report cards, performance reviews, just the question, what have you done for me lately? Performance-based culture makes it easy for us to forget that Jesus has fulfilled the promise. And if we forget that, we're not going to trust in what he did. We're going to trust in what we do. So there was a lady who called the church this past week, um, seeking information about the church, talked for a couple minutes, um, and she asked me if we celebrate the feast. Um, And I had to ask her, well, what do you mean by feast? An important thing to ask for clarification. And she said, well, the the feast that Jesus celebrated, you know, the, the feast from the Old Testament. And I responded by saying, well, Jesus fulfilled what those feasts point to. And now we practice the ordinances that he gave the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are the works that picture the work that he has done for us. So this lady, God bless her, failed to see how scripture fits together. One could, make, one could use the same logic to say that we should still observe kosher laws. Like what the Judaizers were saying. It's in the Bible, so let's do it. No, friends, when we, we have the whole picture. And so now what comes before takes on a new significance because Christ has fulfilled it. The cross represents the fulfillment of the old age and the beginning of the new age. So a promise is a promise. Now because Jesus has fulfilled what came before, does that mean we just rip out our Old Testaments? No, that won't be necessary. Paul explains the law's purpose, and he explains how the law's purpose functions within God's overall plan. And Paul builds this argument carefully. He stacks it on one another. So it's worth it for us to slow down and examine each part. So we begin in verse 19. If we keep talking about the primacy of the promise, then it leads to a logical question. Why did God give the law? Paul says in verse 19 that the law was added because of transgressions. Now, Paul, this doesn't seem really clear here. What do you mean by that? Three things can help us see what Paul means. First, Paul's choice of the word transgression. Transgression means a violation of a standard. Second, we got context, context, context. We observe what Paul, Paul means by transgressions by filtering it through the argument Paul's trying to make. Paul says later in this passage that the law is supposed to lead us to Christ. Violation of the standard, supposed to lead to Christ. And third, 
we can observe similar passages like this. Romans 4.15. Paul says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law was added because of transgression. Putting it together, we see that the law makes transgressions clear. To know what a violation of a standard is, you have to know what the actual standard is. The law makes the standard clear and thus exposes how much we violate it. It exposes how sinful we are. So as the law reveals transgressions, it should be obvious that it's not the solution to our biggest problem of sin. Paul expresses this in Romans 7 where he says that the law made him know what it meant to covet, to lust after something that someone else has. The law made him know what that is. But the law didn't prevent him from doing that. This reflects the law's temporary nature. Paul says in verse 19 that the law was only meant for a limited time. So the law was given to make clear what sin is. And the intended time for the law reflects its limited nature. And Paul goes on to say the law is even further limited because it arrived through what he says intermediaries, through angels. Once again, tough on the surface. So we see that God gave the law to Israel through angels, through Moses. They received a third hand. Paul's trying to emphasize the law's limitation. So he stresses the distance between Israel and God in the giving of it. Compare that to the promise. God gave Abraham the promise firsthand. Not secondhand, not thirdhand. Additionally, intermediaries not only stress distance, but also it communicates that it's an agreement between two parties. We said that a definition of a man-made covenant was the initiative of one person. So intermediaries, the, the law, means that both sides have to meet up to their requirements. It will depend on Israel's obedience, whereas the promise to Abraham depended on God's provision. So this is the purpose of the law, making sins clear. And it's limited. But doesn't this seem to oppose God's promise? How is it that the law and promise can work together if they are so different? This is what Paul deals with in verse 21 and following. Just because promise and law have different functions does not mean that they don't work towards the same end. We think of a football team. An offensive lineman and a quarterback don't do the same thing. They have different functions, but they both work together towards the same end, moving the ball down the field. So how do they mesh? What's the law's function? Paul first answers this negatively. He tells what the law doesn't do. He says the law was not intended to give life. It was not intended to give life. 
You go back to Romans 7. Paul says, I knew what it was to sin because of the law, but it didn't stop me from sinning. Look at the history of the people of Israel. These were the people who knew all of the requirements of God. And yet they didn't do them. It didn't stop them from sinning. This is because the law is not intended to give life. The law does not contain within it the power to enable a person to live by it. Remember the principle of Galatians 3.12. The one who does them shall live by them. The law promises life to those who do it, to those who do it completely. But since no one does it completely, it cannot promise life. All it can promise is curse. So this is the negative function of the law. It doesn't work to give life. But what does it do? What does God intend it for it to do? It's intended to hold us in anticipation for the fulfillment of the promise of, God, of salvation. It's a holdover to the new era. Furthermore, it reveals our imprisonment to sin, that we cannot do the law. So we believe in the one who did the law, and who died taking our curse for the law that we broke. The law is intended to make us worse so that Christ can make us better. The law, friends, is what convinces us of our need. It's the accurate, honest, and grim diagnosis of our souls. And it's meant to drive us to the only cure. So Paul uses two analogies for the law's positive function of driving us to Christ, revealing how bad our situation is in driving us to Christ. The first comes in verse 23, where Paul says that the law held us captive and imprisoned us. The words being used here indicate confining to specific limits in the particular situation of holding prisoners captive until their trials. Paul knew what this was like. He appealed to go under trial under Caesar while he was in Israel. So he was held in protective custody until he got there. So because we cannot keep the law, the law can only condemn, and we are under imprisoned to its guilt. However, God works through the imprisonment of the law. One commentator says, it's as if God refuses to let go in the law until it hands us over to Christ. The law imprisoned us. Another analogy, Paul says the law is like a guardian. A guardian. This is meant to say that the law is only meant for a limited time. You see, a guardian in that day was like a glorified babysitter or a chaperone. It was usually a, a household slave who oversaw the moral behavior of kids six years old through teenagers. Not only was it a temporary arrangement having a guardian, but the guardian was also meant to prepare the child for the next stage of life. The next stage after the law, according to verse 24, is justification 
through faith in Christ. So then, friends, can you see how the law's purpose functions within God's plan? The law reveals how sinful we are, which in turn prepares us to see how great Christ is. The promised era of freedom for which many eagerly await is the era right after high school. And maybe for adults, it's retirement. Ask any teenager in high school about their current experience, and he or she will probably groan about the confines of living at home, about going to class every day and having to do homework. Many teenagers feel the restraints of high school and the fact that they can't do anything about it besides dropping out only compounds their frustration. So this is why there is just an explosion of joy at the arrival of every summer because they get a taste of what that final freedom of the last school bell of senior year will bring when they experience the full joy of Alice Cooper. School's out for summer, school's out forever. But the ironic thing is, the thing that frustrates them the most is the thing that's supposed to be preparing them for the thing they long for the most. So teenagers who are just so totally over high school for the freedom of uh, graduation, they long for that freedom because they are aware of how supposedly bad their current situation is. So in order for us to gain and long for the freedom in Christ, we have to see how bad our current situation is. We have to see our bondage to sin. And this is where the law comes in. This is what the law reveals. And we see Jesus displaying the law's function several times in his earthly ministry. We read about it with the rich young ruler. And what does this rich young ruler want? What does he ask? A seemingly reasonable question. He asks Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows his heart. And it's as if Jesus is holding a weight over this man's head. And he goes along and he, he responds the way uh, he would expect him to respond. And so he drops just a little bit of this weight on him. He says, no, you know the commandments. Oh yeah, I've done them since my youth. He feels like he can carry this weight. But then, in love, Jesus drops the full weight of the law on this young man. And it crushes him. He shows him that he's not really trusting in God for his salvation. He's trusting in his possessions. So, friends, this is why we can't soft-pedal sin. Because we only, it's only when we truly grasp the awfulness of sin that the law reveals that we will not just decide Christ, but we will fly to Christ. This is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The convicted sinner no more decides for Christ than the poor drowning man decides to take hold of that rope that is thrown to him and suddenly provides him with the only means of escape. When we see the awfulness of our situation, 
We are going to run with joy to Jesus. But Jesus is more than just an escape pod from hell. When we have truly grasped our sin, we are going to see how amazing grace is. We are going to see how deep Christ's payment was. We will walk in grace, which means that we are accepted because God has made good on his promise to provide for salvation. He's made good on that promise through Christ. Grace means that we, are no, lo- we no longer obey out of fear, but out of joyful gratitude. And when we live out of joyful gratitude, friends, we are not concerned with earning things from God because it's already been earned. No, when we walk in joyful gratitude, we simply live to the glory of God in freedom. This is what the law does. It drives us to Christ. And Christ brings freedom to truly live for God. So in closing, I ask, what is it that you think you need? I hope from our time together this morning and the past several weeks, you've seen that the greatest need is salvation from sin, to be made right with God. The question of Galatians is how do you get that? God revealed his law not to show us how to earn our salvation, but to show us that we can't earn it. The law shows how great God's promise is, which shows us how great Christ is, the fulfillment of that promise. So let us run to him and let us rest in him. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your incredible wonderful plan of redemption. God, that even when we see how sinful we are, we see only how gracious you are and how loving that you are. And so, Father, magnify yourself in our hearts. Let us see how great the provision of Christ is. Let us see how amazing grace actually is. And to do that, Lord, we have to be honest with ourselves against your perfect righteousness. And let your law, God, have your work in our our hearts that it may drive us to Christ. And let us rest in him this day, this week, and for eternity. We pray in his name, amen.